This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. If you had told me when I first started playing that Red Fender Strat on the day of my Amin that one day I'd be on the other side of the world playing some loud-ass guitar through a Marshall stack at the fucking BBC with five video cameras floating around in the same room where Jimi Hendrix once did the same thing, I would never have believed you. Furthermore, if you had said I'd be playing not just original songs, but also punk rock covers of a Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan Kawali song like the one you're hearing, or the Bollywood classic Joli Kepiche Kya Hai, encompassing so many different elements of my musical and cultural backgrounds, I might have passed out in the middle of our conversation. But on July 13th, 2010, there I was, wielding a butterscotch blonde Telecaster, wearing a long white gorta totally unbuttoned to expose my very punk chest hair, black jeans, Adidas, and a green beret atop my head. And, of course, drenched in sweat, as was then, and still is my M.O. That day was and remains one of the most surreal experiences I have ever had. But, as with many other pivotal moments in my musical career, it was both a high and a low point. Behind the impassioned guitar playing, I was wondering how long I could keep it all together. How long I could hide the fact that just a few days prior, after a year and a half of stone-cold by the grit of my teeth sobriety, I snuck in a couple secret joints and drinks in the middle of the Camina's first ever tour of the UK, the one I had booked and was supposed to be managing. It was kind of a split-second decision, but for folks in recovery like myself, that's usually a sign that things have been brewing under the surface for some time. The tour certainly had its stresses, but at the end of the day, I had no long-term plan. Just a shaky dream that rock and roll would save me from myself. I wasn't really accountable to anyone other than myself. And so it was no surprise that eventually, I just kind of wanted to let loose and get high again. It felt like maybe I could get it right this time. Just get high when I wanted to, not needed to. 
but almost as soon as I took in those deep, smoke-filled breaths, the calm subsided, and a small but noticeable voice in my head was like, Oh shit, here we go. The mental obsession was back. Could I find a way to do it again? No one would have to know. No, 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 I I shouldn't. I, I gotta prove to myself that I can take it or leave it. That was the whole point. It's no big deal. But fuck, it felt so good yesterday, and I'm on a fucking European tour with a band. Why the fuck can't I get high? Shit. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm fucked. See, even though it had been a year and a half of forced sobriety, I hadn't addressed any of the reasons I got high in the first place. I just pushed it down. Pretty soon, I was getting more and more out of control. Eventually, my bandmates found out. By the time we flew back to the U.S. that summer, there were serious signs of trouble. But there was no time for a break. We lined up all sorts of shows in New York, and although I was going through the motions and and playing my guitar, my mind was somewhere else, trying my best to outthink that mental panic of being in the midst of active addiction. And by this time, even though weed was my first love... I was kind of doing whatever drugs I could get my hands on. There was one show in Boston in particular where you, you were wearing chuppels. Sonny Ali hadn't yet joined the Kaminas, but we were touring a bunch with his band at the time. And at some point you, you took off one of your chuppels and you just flung it into the crowd. And I remember it hitting some girl like who was right in front of me, like right in the face. She just walked out of the show. And I was kind of like, oh shit, that's kind of fucked up. Uh, that dude kind of seems like an asshole or something, but yeah, that was, you know, just before you quit, so I don't know if you remember that at all. I still don't. And part of me didn't want to put that in this episode, but fuck it. That's how bad it was. The band was talking about moving to New York, starting our own label, teaming up with other friends and I was watching it all go by in a fearful, panicked haze. The last straw was in December of 2010. The Caminas were invited by the city of Boston to play on fucking New Year's Eve in the Boston Common. This should have been a crowning achievement for us, for me, capping off what was a historic year for the band. Yet no one knew whether I was coming or going. I showed up, at least physically, but was totally checked out. It would turn out to be my last gig with the band. All I wanted to do was zone the fuck out for the next few days, by myself, away from everyone and everything. I was high as shit alone in my parents' car at a train station near their house one night when I got caught by the police. It was a weeknight. The cops were like my age. And when I rolled the window down, they took my license and gave me a sad sort of look. Why didn't you just go home, man? One of them remarked after noting how close by I lived. 
They said they would give me a pass and just slap me with a $400 fine for the weed rather than an OUI, but I had to call my parents to come get me because they weren't about to let me drive home in that condition. And so, on January 4th, 2011, the night before my parents' wedding anniversary, Ara came and took me home like he had done so many times before. After walking into my house and seeing the look of disappointment in Amma's eyes, it seemed like nothing had changed over the last 10 years. I was 27 years old, not a fortuitous age in the rock and roll world. Was there any hope left for me at all? From Rafelion Media, I'm Shah Jahan Khan, and this is the King of the World Podcast, a historical, cultural, and personal look back at the 20 years since 9-11. Episode 6, Recovery, Rebirth, and Resilience, Trump, USA. Uh, my name is Andy Short. I am <laughs> longtime associate of Shah Jahan Khan. Andy was my first sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. A sponsor in either AA or any 12-step program is someone who sort of takes you under their wing, helps walk you through the process of recovery, and is a little more involved with you than other friends you may make along the way. We've known each other for over a decade. On January 5th, 2011, what I now consider my first real sobriety date, I'd love to say that I woke up and was like, I'm going to change my life today. And that's how I ended up back in meetings. Truthfully, I ran out of options and had nothing better to do. I was basically under house arrest at my parents' place in Boxborough, sleeping all day, up all night smoking cigarettes, and just in my own sad little world where it hurt to think about anything or anyone from my past. Can you tell me about your first memory of me the first time that we met? What I remember is driving out to your house in, in what was it? What Taxborough, town? Massachusetts. Taxborough, Massachusetts, and okay. taking Route 2 out there and sitting there, and you were so sad. Oh my goodness, why was I so sad? You were, you were like fresh. I mean, I think I met you your first like month or something back, right? Yeah. Andy is one of those guys that is so lovable, it's ridiculous. He's got a big smile and is now the extremely jacked director of a fitness company for folks in recovery. But when we first met, both of our lives looked very different. And we were both like wicked potheads and we connected on that level. And I remember you. You talked, I'm sorry if this is inappropriate. No, no, no. This is all literally what I want to hear. You, you talked to me about just a real, a real cocaine habit. I remember feeling like I was like listening and trying to, you know, like trying to do the thing. And uh, I really just felt like I'd missed out because I never got to do a lot of cocaine. <laughs> it sounded kind of fun. <laughs> Not that the children should, that's the message they should get. But. Both Andy and I used humor throughout our friendship and our 12-step work together to push through the tough stuff. That's what a lot of people in recovery do, at least the ones I know. It's the only way to give yourself a break when you start to look back at your life. I remember there was all this, there were all these issues with the band. The band was like a huge problem. <laughs> like I could not shut up about it. <laughs> it like wasn't happening. It wasn't even happening. It was like, 
occupied, I think, like 98% of your time and thinking. What Andy and I are talking about here is how I wasn't even in the band anymore, yet it still consumed me. My longest and most intimate relationship for my entire adult life had been with the Caminas. It was like watching an ex move on without me, knowing there was nothing I could do about it because I did it to myself. And you talk about Bossom and being like so angry and Adam resentful <laughs> and, and at the same time conflicted because he was a very important person to you. You know, that was very clear that all these relationships from the band were so important. Andy and others insisted that my best days were ahead. That if I just put my recovery first, things would get better beyond my wildest dreams. And well, I had no choice but to start taking a long, hard look at who I was. Who I really wanted to be without the band, without all the punk rock glory, and of course, without the weed. This time, almost nine years after I'd attended my first 12-step meeting, I was able to accept that whatever I had been doing all these years wasn't working. I needed help, and I finally accepted it. I started to tell my story at meetings to offer some hope to people just starting out. Something else which is pretty common to do. I didn't realize it at first, but this simple act was a therapeutic way to start to let people in. To start to chip away at my terminal uniqueness. Something that I'd perhaps been holding on to before I even smoked my first joint. This was just a different kind of performance, I guess. I was now a storyteller. And it turned out that people could relate and appreciate me in a way I never imagined. And slowly, things started to improve. I don't remember when, but one day I realized I hadn't thought about getting high all day. I started to actually be happy, even grateful to be given another chance. I met a couple musicians at a meeting, and we started jamming and writing fun new songs, just like your everyday basement rock songs, like feel-good stuff. I started to think, like, maybe I was a good person deep down who had kind of lost my way. I was certainly a much more pleasant family member. One of the times when I felt like things were turning around for you was when you invited me and Amainaga to go to a meeting with you. My sister Mariam had a front row seat to all of this. And I remember we went to a meeting, it was in a church basement, and you spoke a little bit about your experiences, and, and other people were talking about what they had gone through. And I just remember feeling like this was really a community that you had become a part of, and these were people that understood what you were going through and, and supported you. And I remember leaving that meeting feeling like, oh, wow, like this is something that he's getting through. He has people who are doing it with him, um, and it, it was a really positive experience for me. I started reawakening lost interests like hiking, started taking care of myself physically by eventually quitting cigarettes, and getting into running and working out. Andy felt hopeful I'd stick with it this time. You were taking action all the time, it felt like to me. Like, you're showing up at meetings, like we were, we were just like meeting up, doing the thing. My sense was you started thinking about like, what's next for you? You know, like things started to get into proportion. Like it was, you were starting to think about like, how do I like move forward instead of be kind of trapped by the past? I'm not sure if it was like post Kamina's media hype PTSD or just the rawness of being newly sober. 
maybe a combination of both. But I was in a tune-out-the-news type phase for those first couple of years. I was fortunate enough to solely focus on my recovery. I had my family there every day, providing not just emotional support, but basic necessities like food and housing. And let's be real. Those cops in my hometown took pity on me. Something we know is statistically extremely unlikely the darker your skin is. In terms of what was happening in post-9-11 America, though, it wouldn't really take too long for me to defog and start to look around again. To see the Islamophobia industry raging stronger than ever. We all know this country has a real problem with Islamic extremists. By which I do not mean Islam extreme! <laughs> you love, love, love it. All right. Islamophobia became more organized and mainstream around 2010. Perhaps as narratives of mosques being incubators of radicalization, Obama being Muslim, and fear of Islam started taking over the U.S. In 2011, and again in 2015, the Center for American Progress released reports called Fear Incorporated that detailed the coordinated right-wing effort, backed by money, to push an anti-Muslim agenda here in the States. They called it the Islamophobia Network. We have now a situation where uh, it is increasingly difficult if we tell the truth about Islamic supremacism, Islamic separationism, and this unwillingness to follow Western laws, mores, and customs. Are your children taught about the role of Islam during the Holocaust and the, and, and, and the Shoah? No, they are not. Certainly the Nazis have been demonized and vilified, so why do they get a free pass? Because it's the Sharia. Do not offend Islam. Do not insult Islam, even if it's the truth. And now we've gone from one mosque on the peninsula to eight. Well, that goes back. I'm curious to know, you know where are these people coming from and have we checked their backgrounds? The reports showed that tens of millions of dollars were and are flowing to Islamophobia think tanks and experts to spread hate and misinformation about Muslims and Islam to millions of Americans. How does it work? Foundations and donors provide the money first, which then goes to loosely knit organizations and individuals who rely on a handful of so-called experts to disseminate misinformation, which is spread by a larger network of activists, politicians, and media, all culminating in the attitude that Islam is violent. Sometimes it's coordinated, sometimes it's incidental, but this Islamophobia machine results in further marginalization of and discrimination against Muslims. As of 2014, the network had nearly 70 groups whose purpose was to amplify anti-Muslim sentiment. Their biggest accomplishment? Convincing you Sharia is taking over the USA. There are places here in America where people are saying we need to have Sharia law. There's also a fear of creeping Sharia, the slow but steady influence of Sharia Muslim law into America. They have not done their research on this imam that wants Sharia law, America to be more Sharia compliant. Western civilization is in a war. We should test every person from here who is of a Muslim background, and if they believe in Sharia, they should be deported. So what happened in 2010 is that a right-wing lawyer by the name of David Yerushalmi decided that he wanted to introduce the notion of a scary Islamic law into the American public discourse. Sumbul Ali Karamali is an author and lawyer. She wrote Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. 
he's a lawyer, so he knows perfectly well that Sharia, Islamic law, whatever you call it, cannot take over the United States. No religious law can take over the United States because of the First Amendment to our Constitution, specifically the Establishment Clause. And yet he himself says that he doesn't really care about that. His purpose was to introduce the idea of Sharia as a scary thing. And well, it worked. Americans have a skewed notion of what Sharia actually is. The literal translation of the Arabic word Sharia is a path to the watering place, or path to righteousness figuratively. It's basically a set of guidelines that ideally suggests the way people ought to live, a combination of interpretations of our holy text, the Quran, and Sunnah, or the practices of Prophet Muhammad. By the way, there's no real exhaustive list of those either. Different people believe different things. The point is that Sharia is up to interpretation and complex, even to Muslims. And not all places in the world are the same, so obviously it's going to have different flavors wherever you're at. There was not consensus a lot of the time, right? People being who they are, most of the time there was disagreement. But Islamic scholars all agreed that every Islamic law, every religious guideline has to be in accordance with the maqasid al-sharia. Now, the maqasid means the goals of the sharia. So Islamic scholars articulated five, sometimes six, depending on how you articulate them, but five or six goals of the Sharia that every Islamic law had to comply with, that everyone has the right to life, the right to intellect, the right to family, the right to religion, and the right to resources. Wait a minute. Hold up. Rights? To life? Intellect? Family? Religion? What? Now, to me, as a Muslim American, that sounds to me kind of like our U.S. Constitution, doesn't it? And yet, these goals were articulated a thousand years before the U.S. Constitution. Side note, it isn't even accurate to say Sharia law. It's kind of like saying chai fucking tea. But this dude David and others in the Islamophobia network coined that construct and were hell-bent on spreading the notion that scary-ass Sharia law was going to take away everyone's freedom and hot dogs or whatever. So he deliberately started this campaign, and he was just very successful. And he and his colleagues also have the ear of legislators, also a lot of people in Congress. And so he was able to push through this idea, and it really took fire. He made a lot of money. He was able to convince 14 states to pass anti-Sharia legislation. All for nothing. It's a colossal waste of time. Unfortunately, you know, the Islamophobia network is really good at spreading lies. And then Muslims have to kind of scramble to go and set the record straight. And it's always really hard because lies can be super simple. The truth is always more complicated. desire of Islam is to enforce Sharia law onto every non-Islamic country. Sharia law is evil! We're in America. We are in USA. We should follow our constitution, not Sharia law. Around this time of Islamophobic hysteria setting in, I felt like maybe I was ready to go back to school. Again to UMass Lowell, but this time, without any pressure from anyone. Once I was accepted, I just dove the fuck in. Went every day, 
did all the work I was supposed to, participated in class, and got to know my professors. For me, every single aced quiz or test, every A on a paper was like a gradual rebuttal of whatever bullshit I'd been telling myself for years. That I was the black sheep of the family. That I would never amount to anything. That I'd always end up quitting because I was just a fundamentally flawed person. That was indeed a real high point for everyone in the family. You had reached a major milestone in your life. It seemed like I was adding another layer to my identity as well. A straight-A fucking college student. You had finally done something on your own terms that you were proud of. I remember you had a professor who had given you some type of special recognition. I don't remember the details of it, but I remember that you were really proud of yourself for for getting that. And we all felt the same way. And that was another time where, you know, I really saw tangibly that things were moving forward for you. And um, you were the driving force behind it. It means a lot to me to hear Mudiam say that. Maybe I even cried when I heard it. You don't know. Specifically because... I can't imagine what it must have been like to have such a self-destructive brother. After all, when it comes to people struggling with addiction, the people around us often suffer equally, if not more. And most importantly, uh, you had become an educated person, but you had become a much better human being. And so there I was, comfortably a student for a couple of years, being the fucking good kid, uh, almost 30-year-old grown-ass man that I never thought I could be. Then came April of 2013. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Saw quite a few casualties coming back. I saw one guy with his legs gone at the knees, some ankles and feet missing, shrapnel wounds on people on the sides of the head. Terror turning the Boston Marathon into a kind of war zone. The Boston Marathon is technically the world's oldest marathon, established in 1897, and is easily one of Boston's most treasured public spectacles. There's usually about half a million people watching along the 26.2-mile route that starts in Hopkinton and ends right downtown, on Boylston Street. I've seen it up close many times, as have many Bostonians. So naturally, I freaked the fuck out hearing of an attack. My stomach clenched into a familiar tight intestinal fist. But also, like I've said before, that other kind of fear was close behind. The part of me that knew that if this was a Muslim, fucking, oh, it was going to suck so bad again. At 2.50 p.m. today, um, there were uh, simultaneous explosions that occurred along the route of the Boston Marathon near the finish line. Today is a holiday in Massachusetts, Patriots Day. It's a day that celebrates the free and fiercely independent spirit that this great American city of Boston has reflected from the earliest days of our nation. A little bit before 3 p.m., two almost simultaneous explosions had ripped through the crowd at the finish line, sending all of downtown, and all of Boston, really, into a tailspin of panic, shock, and horror. It looked like another fucking full-scale terrorist attack in the sense that no one knew what the fuck was going on, people were injured, and it wasn't clear whether more was coming. Tonight, these streets seem frozen in time. At that moment this afternoon, when two bombs went off at that finish line, wounding more than 140, killing three at least, including an eight-year-old. 
two brothers were identified as the attackers three days later. Two Chechen Muslim brothers, as we would be reminded over and over and over again in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. They then stole a car and killed an MIT police officer. The eldest, Tamerlan, was killed in a police shootout. The youngest, Johar, supposedly a nice kid from Cambridge, was arrested the following day, hiding in a boat in a backyard in Watertown, scrawling something about vengeance for Iraq and Afghanistan as he was severely wounded in a barrage of police gunfire. Pretty soon after the attack, a good friend who was at the marathon that day mentioned how the crowd really came together, helping each other, and he said something that I'll never forget, that the response was uniquely American, that he felt super proud of his city, his country, uniquely American. It sounded so weird to me, and so like not the way that I understood the world at all. I felt sad that he was there and had to fucking see that shit. I was like thanking God that he wasn't hurt and wondered what sort of lasting effect it would have on his brain. I knew that he was still in shock, but in a way, the sort of primal thing that came out sounded like this to me. America is the best. We do everything best, even empathy and humanity. We have better humans here. That's why other people want to take that from us. And that's the part that I couldn't relate with at all. It felt like 9-11 all over again. Following a mourning period for Boston, I started to see and hear the phrase Boston strong all over the place. The same calls for unity and strength in the face of evil, like after the September 11th attacks. And every time, I got that familiar uneasy feeling, kind of like I did when I'd see the support our troops ribbons during the beginning of the war on terror. I felt the vibe every time I'd take the train, and any time I'd see someone who happened to be more visibly Muslim than me. I'd get this panicked solidarity type feeling, like something inside me wanting to silently communicate with them to let them know that I was there in case something went down. I hoped they'd do the same for me. And this time next year, on the third Monday in April, the world will return to this great American city to run harder than ever and to cheer even louder for the 118th Boston Marathon. That fucking Boston Strong expression was everywhere, again asking us all to be united in the face of evil, but not leaving much for those of us with complicated feelings. It made me question all that identity shit that I never really sorted out, even while with the Kaminas. How Muslim was I? How brown was I? Why was I feeling so attached to everything, like I wasn't enough of one thing or another thing? A few months after the Boston Marathon bombings, in mid-2013, I moved into an apartment in Lowell. One textile factory opened by a young Boston man named Francis Cabot Lowell consolidated the process of turning cloth into cotton in a single building. After Lowell died, his partners built a town around his textile factories and named it after him. For anyone that has never been to Lowell, well, it's not much like Boxborough at all. There's a different sort of energy there. 
It's considered the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution in the U.S., and a place that kind of fell by the wayside, along with Detroit or Buffalo or many other such cities. The point is, there's this very palpable tension between the old-money whites in the city and various other less politically dominant but socially prominent communities. Here's a post from my Facebook feed on September 4th, 2013. I've lived in Lowell for almost two months. I run the same 2.8-mile loop every morning or afternoon at almost the same time. Okay, maybe not every day. Anyway, I started growing out my beard a few days ago, and I went out for a run today, only to be treated to a loud sand N-word from a car. The car drove by again. This time they yelled again and mumbled something about the Twin Towers. If you don't think racism or bigotry is alive and well in America, even liberal Massachusetts, then think again. And if you're a racist or bigot in 2013, just know that this is one of the most irresponsible, uneducated, and pathetic things you can be. It's not my job to prove anything to you. You are a lazy piece of shit, and it is up to you to educate yourself. Who knows what motivated the dude bros to say what they did? Laughing and probably high-fiving each other like the extreme guys from that scene in Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being not so extreme and 10 being extremely extreme, I give this a 9.5! But something about the brazenness of that incident empowered me to speak again, publicly maybe just on my Facebook platform. And, well, it kind of felt cathartic. Like, now that I was more educated and a couple years sober, I could maybe reawaken some of that punk attitude I was so used to projecting while I was with the band. I'd like to think that's what motivated me the following semester to take a particularly poignant class for a brown Muslim man. I enrolled in a class in the criminal justice department. 44.248 international and domestic fucking terrorism. I distinctly remember picking it because, well, fuck them. It was a pretty packed course. I think especially on the heels of the marathon bombing, there was a renewed interest in the scientific study of terrorism. And while it was certainly interesting to learn that, for instance, one of the first large-scale terrorist attacks in U.S. history was perpetrated by Mario Buda, an Italian so-called anarchist who bombed Wall Street in 1920, we inevitably found ourselves hampered in the Muslim shit. The same old discussions about radicalization, ideology versus action, and a lot of the kinds of problematic debunked theories that we talked about in the last episode. Every time I left that class, I really wished that I could walk across the quad to the library and see that other brown kid who I used to make jokes with years earlier. Jokes that we'd often turn into songs. What you're hearing right now is the first bit of music that Bassam and I made together right before he asked me to rejoin the band. See, after releasing an album and touring for a couple years without me, the Caminas had gone on an indefinite hiatus in 2013, and now, in 2014, we're thinking of getting back together. The thing I love most about this is that it's raw and unfinished. Just a demo. We didn't do it in some fancy studio, it's literally us on a MacBook, using GarageBand. The same way we wrote and recorded several songs on our first album. We never even put it out, this is actually the first time anyone other than us is hearing it, but it was a way for us to test the waters, make sure we could still work together. It seemed like we just missed each other, and as soon as I plugged in my guitar, we were back to the basement goofballs that bonded all those years earlier. In no time, 
he sent along a few other rough sketches that he and the other guys were working on and invited me to come to a band practice. I remember that first jam the four of us did together. Sonny Ali again, who had joined the band during my absence. And we were working on Banana. This was before it was even called Banana. But that day, we were practicing one part in particular. And before we would go into it, you would just just go like, da-da-da-da. And then we would start playing. And then at some point, just jokingly, you said, banana, and then we started playing it. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, like, maybe I could tie that in somehow, like with the mental health stuff, like, don't go bananas or whatever. Just like that, we were back in the studio and then playing our first gigs in years, shooting music videos, including one starring my dad, all while I was finishing up a master's degree in community social psychology. Yeah, you heard that right. The kid that dropped out of college three times was going to get a fucking master's degree. The year was a blur, but not the kind of blur so many other years of my life had been. Not only was I now in my third year of sobriety, but we released our fourth album, Stereotype, which got reviewed in Rolling Stone. Stereotype, I think, is still a really, really good album. That's Karna Ray, our drummer. And it translated really well, and like the band sounded really fresh and everything. But I think that like a lot of 90s revival stuff happens generally out of this feeling of like almost an end of history, or that like, again, talking about like the kind of Obama era political doldrums and kind of feeling that the world was at a standstill, especially if we're talking about related to. The turmoil of post-9-11 and Obama being, uh, you know, as it was seen at the time, like a a justifiable and rational leader on the world stage or whatever, that like America's position in the world had reached this like manageable evil. And I feel like it's like throwback to Clinton era politics where we just acknowledged our manageable evil and we were, as we crawled further and further across markets around the world. And our reunion couldn't have come at a more relevant time because some of the darkest days in recent American history were just around the corner. I want surveillance of certain mosques, okay? Guantanamo Bay. Which, by the way, we are keeping open. And we're going to load it up with some bad dudes. Hillary Clinton is a bigot. Muslims. We know our current president is one. We have training camps growing where they want to kill us. That's my question. When can we get rid of it? We're going to be looking at a lot of different things. Knock the crap out of them, would you? Seriously. like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. In the good old days, they'd rip him out of that seat so fast. I moved on her like a bitch. But I couldn't get there. And she was married. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the p- I can do anything. As the Caminos were re-entering the scene, this fucking guy, this fucking reality TV star turned dangerous demagogue was declaring a bid for president. Everyone around me joked that there was no way he was a serious candidate. But his words had dire consequences. 
I mean, Islamophobia has always ramped up around elections. But Trump started to say more and more serious shit. And a certain segment of Americans were listening and agreeing. I shit you not, research found that there was a correlation between the number of Islam-related tweets made by Trump in a single week and the number of anti-Muslim hate crimes that took place in the days and weeks that followed. Look it up. Is it any surprise then that by 2015, 55% of Americans viewed Islam unfavorably? The Islamophobia network was doing its fucking job and now had its biggest cheerleader at center stage. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Muslims around the country, around the world, were rightfully scared. Again. Donald Trump consistently smears the character of Muslims. He disrespects other minorities, women, judges. Donald Trump, have you even read the United States Constitution? The end of 2015 also marked the end of my education. I finished my master's degree and was getting ready to celebrate five years sober. A few weeks before the new year, we all found out that Trump was planning on holding one of his insane rallies at the Songus Arena in Lowell, of all places, at the exact place I had my undergrad commencement and would soon have the graduate one. I found out about a planned protest. So, the night of January 4th, I joined about 100 people, and we all snuck into the rally. This is so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Wow! The place was completely packed, easily over 10,000 people in attendance. It had the vibe of a really fucked up carnival. Once we took our seats, I looked around the auditorium and saw a woman in hijab on the far left side. We sort of gave each other a heads up, as if silently saying to each other, I see you. I know why you're here. Take care of yourself. Donald J. Trump is calling for As we waited for the asshole to take the stage, the screens around us were airing much of his campaign propaganda, specifically looping his statement about the shutdown of Muslims. The whole crowd cheered. I was horrified. When he finally came out, I was only about 30 feet away. He blabbered incoherently about Iran, Obama, the border, and of course, Islam. Whatever he said, people cheered. I kept having flashbacks to the previous year, when I was listening to Bill Nye the Science Guy deliver a commencement speech in the same auditorium to thousands of young, hopeful people looking ahead to bright futures and perhaps changing the world. But there I was, waiting for my cue to start yelling and screaming with the other few people in my protest pod. Oh, not another one of these characters. I'm in the midst of my best story! As I later told a news outlet, Following three or four other disruptions, my group eventually started shouting our hey, hey, ho, ho, racism, sexism, and Islamophobia has got to go chant. By this time, the crowd was a little more on the annoyed side, but they were still very rowdy and glad to see us go. On my way out, I looked right in the eyes of a man and screamed, I'm an American just like you, to which he replied, then act like it. The whole fucking arena was booing and screaming, USA, USA over us. But we didn't give a shit. This was our way, my way, of stepping up and making it clear that there was something wrong with where the country was headed. Isn't this more fun than a regular boring rally? Isn't this? 
For the rest of 2016, many, many, many Americans, including Muslims, started to come out in droves to make their voices heard and try their hardest to prevent a Trump victory. A lot of folks responded to the increasing anti-blackness, anti-Muslimness, xenophobia, nativism, and racism by trying to take control of their own portrayals and disputing racist sentiments, oftentimes in direct opposition to what seemed like a growing support for Trump and his campaign. For the Caminas, this meant booking our first large-scale U.S. tour since I had rejoined the band, which we called Rock Therapy. And that's exactly what it felt like. As horrendous as the daily news cycle became, we brought and received companionship, solidarity, compassion, and love during an almost month-long, loud, raucous, continuous mosh pit from coast to coast. I was so thankful to have my band back again to no longer feel like I was on the sidelines, either physically, battling cravings to get fucked up, mentally, trapped in my crazy-ass brain, or spiritually. I still wasn't sure exactly where all that stuff fit for me, but I was able to find peace and serenity on our long drives between cities rather than worry about having to get high. It felt like I was alive and awake in a whole new way that summer. Not disparate, fragmented identities, but one person bringing all parts of me to that experience. I was healthier, both mentally and physically, than I had perhaps ever been in my life. But also, part of something bigger than myself again, which was having a positive impact and meant something to other people. So I um, went to law school with the idea, and I think it's, I, I mean, a lot of people might have this idea, and it sounds silly when I say it, but I literally went to law school to help people. Badul Raza is Assistant General Counsel at Boston Public Health Commission. She's a Pakistani who eventually came to Boston for law school. She realized quickly that she was good at litigation and ended up working in both the private and public sectors, including the DA's office, where she started to get a taste of the real world. I had like a lot of like horrible experiences with judges and I still sometimes have experiences like that with judges and and like, you know, defendants and people in the court. And like, I think that having the experience of being judged for who I am before I've even had a chance to like prove myself, so to speak, really allows me to identify with my communities that are um, underrepresented and disadvantaged. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. It was those very underrepresented and disadvantaged communities that would be fodder for the thing that actually happened. The thing that, if a lot of us zoom out and look at the big picture, can't wrap our heads around in theory but in a way makes perfect sense for the direction America had been heading for a long time. Maybe quietly at first, but by 2016, you couldn't deny it anymore. We have a major projection right now. Donald Trump will take Ohio. It is remarkable what we're seeing here, not just Ohio, but all over the country. And CNN projects Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. Donald Trump will carry the state of Wisconsin. Look at how close he is. Right now, he has 257 electoral votes. That's remarkable. Uh, and uh, I mean, this is this is truly the beginning of the end for Hillary Clinton's campaign. He fucking won. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, We can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States. I've just received a call. 
from Secretary Clinton. She congratulated us, it's about us, on our victory. I remember going to a gym in East Boston the very next day after the election. East Boston's a part of the city that has traditionally been home to lots of immigrants. And as I was doing my best to sweat away the national tragedy that was unfolding all around me, these three dudes started yelling and high-fiving each other, saying, Hey, we got our country back! Yeah! I'd seen them around a lot before, always having a sneaking suspicion that they were cops. I was paralyzed with fear and left immediately. Chaotic scenes erupting at airports around the world. Protests all across the country. Denounce President Trump's temporary ban on travelers from seven mostly Muslim countries. Lawyers descending on airports. Chaos and confusion. On January 27th, 2017, Trump signed Executive Order 13769, protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. Now known as the first version of the travel ban, or the Muslim ban. What many thought was mere rhetoric to mobilize voters during his campaign became straight-up Islamophobic policy one week into his presidency. And it was really scary. Part of this heaviness that just came over everything from the day he won the election. The original order banned the entry of people from seven predominantly Muslim countries into the United States for 90 days, indefinitely barred Syrian refugees, and banned all other refugees for 120 days. Future iterations with fairly negligible changes were put into effect as previous versions were shut down or expired. I remember I had like booked a trip to Europe and then I was in France when the travel ban was announced and I was supposed to fly back the day the travel ban was going to go into effect. And I could not believe it. I was shocked and I was like hurt, mortified. And then one, the first, one of the first thoughts I was like, thank God I'm a U.S. citizen. Like, I can enter. But I was getting text messages from everyone being like, will you be able to come in? Like, you know, um, because, you know, I'm Muslim. And it was called the Muslim ban. I literally flew in to Boston the day the travel ban went into effect. Eventually, the Supreme Court voted 5-4 to allow the third version of the ban, ruling that the president has broad authority to suspend entry to the U.S., the court's decision encouraged the Trump administration to continue enacting questionable policies, such as extreme vetting measures of certain refugees' social media accounts and personal information from 15 years prior, a.k.a. the backdoor Muslim ban. It also paved the way for targeting U.S. citizens for denaturalization, proposing a wealth test on immigrants, and a ban against Central American asylum seekers at the Mexican border. But something else also started to happen right away. It started to feel like there were two distinct sides to all this shit. That basically half the country was on our side this time. Not like right after 9-11. It was like this awful thing happened by the president of the United States, but Americans w that I saw around me were not having it. You know, they were like, absolutely not. We're going to do whatever is in our power to like stop it. Lawyers like Badul were able to gather lots of data and go back to courts and show them how fucked this whole thing was. How unnecessary and awful detentions of innocent people were happening all around the country. Then I landed in Boston, and I remember I landed and I like went to the bathroom. Um, 
and there were these signs that said volunteer lawyers come like and with directions and it was just like very heartwarming because it, it I felt like you belonged Badul was just one of hundreds if not thousands of people affected by the Muslim ban and she joined the ranks of lawyers trying to help those affected I think we have about 40 to 50 lawyers right now at the airport about 25 are inside and the rest are deployed at the different terminals that we know there are incoming flights from in addition to the legal community mobilizing Protests were happening at airports around the country. Filmmaker Irem Pervin Bilal, director of 2020's award-winning I'll Meet You There, was raised in Nigeria and Pakistan before coming to the U.S. to attend Caltech. She remembers the protest in Los Angeles. My mom is about to come to this country to start receiving medical care. And I'm hearing that even green card holders are being detained because everything was so just complicated then. So I, you know, I never thought that Trump being elected could affect me so personally so soon that within like nine days, there was question that, you know, I was calling my mom and saying that if they stop you, you know, you're going to have to call this lawyer. She'll be waiting outside, all this stuff, right? All the stress is happening. I hear about this protest and I pick up my protest bag and I rush, I take an Uber, I walk as an Amazon walking into Tom Bradley, which is the international international terminal, I hear like chants, you know, to this day when I'm talking about this, I get goosebumps. Like I can just hear, let them in, let them in. And like, you know, just there's thousands of people at Tom Bradley, that same terminal that I came to the U.S. for the first time, you know, to, to go to school at Caltech. And these people are holding banners that say, let them in. We are all Muslim, all of that. Safe to say, Iram was feeling a lot of different shit at the same time. As I was walking, I didn't realize, but I was bawling. Because I realized at that moment that I was fearful that there wouldn't be this much support. I could not have believed that people would come out in droves and in our support. Because I feared that at the bottom of it, people didn't like Muslims. And that what Donald Trump was saying is what every American felt. That was the fear from like baggage from post 9-11 America, right? And the post 9-11 world. And this is the moment that was super American. Is as I'm walking and I'm crying, this woman comes muscling through the crowd and hugs me tight and whispers in my ear, you will be fine. The Muslim ban would go on to have major implications for our country, including fewer Muslim refugees, an increase in intimidation, bias, and violence against American Muslims, an increase in American Muslim visits to the ER, but a decrease in their visits to primary care doctors, and the reinforcement of the supposed link between Islam and violence. Iram's story, though, and the reassurance she received from that stranger makes me think this. When I turned 18 right after 9-11, I was anything but fine. Almost 10 years later, after I quit the Caminas, I wasn't fine. But now, as it seemed like America was at its least fine point in my entire life, maybe our community and I could finally handle it. Next time on King of the World. 9-11 made it that you had to identify as something. And that was not from your free will. That was not from your own arrival at your identity. Thanks for listening to today's episode. King of the World is a production of Rafaelion Media. 
Today's show was produced by me and Usad Butt, and with sound design and sound mixing by Mark Anato. Lindsay Gamble is our associate producer. We had production help from Isabel Havens, Mona Baloch, and Erica Reif. Theme song by me, with production help, mixing, and mastering by Nick Sampiello. Original music by Simon Hutchinson. Special thanks to Sunny Ali, Andy Short, Sumbal Ali Karamali, Karna Ray, Batul Raza, and Irim Parveen Bilal. We'll have links to each of them in the show notes. Thanks again to my family, Amma, Aga, Mariam, and Nuna. Thanks for listening. I'm Shah Jahan Khan. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.